Okay, well, in the month of October, we're actually spending four weeks on the parables that Jesus told. Pastor Eddie Bang preached um, on, does anyone remember what he preached on last week? The parable of, yeah, rich man and Lazarus. Um, and today we're actually going to look at another parable, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Um, but before we get into the passage, I'd like to first um, ask you a question, as I always do. Um, so if someone asks you, what do you think is the greatest distance on earth between two people? What do you think is the greatest distance on earth between two people? How would you answer that question? If you are a linear thinker like me, I'm super linear, um, perhaps you'll be thinking of physical distance, like someone in the North Pole and someone in the South Pole. But more lateral thinkers um, would probably interpret this question quite differently. They might say the greatest distance between two people is the distance between life and death. Well, that's a good one. Well, what about this romantic poem um, that says this? The furthest distance in the world isn't the distance between life and death, but is when I stand in front of you, yet you don't know that I love you. <laughs> oh. But, you, you know, it makes sense, right? Oh, that distance. Oh, you know, when I did a Google search online, um, this thing came up. The greatest distance between two people is misunderstanding. That's a good one. But what about this? The greatest distance between two people is pride. The greatest distance between two people is pride. How does pride get in the way of relationships and cause distance between people? How about take 30 seconds and chat with the person next to you? Why do you think pride causes distance between people? Um, St. Augustine, a famous early Christian writer, defined pride as the love of one's own excellence. The love of one's own excellence. In simpler terms, here's another definition, feeling that we are better and more important than others. Now, pride is good at destroying relationships and causing distance because, as you can see from the definition, pride is essentially the love of yourself over and above other people. But in a healthy and intimate relationship, it is usually based on the opposite type of love. It is love for the other, not love of yourself over and above the other, but love for the other. So you see, pride and love of other, they're mutually exclusive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, God gives us this beautiful picture of what love looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 
It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. But when we compare that list to how people behave when they are prideful, we quickly see how opposite they really are. Pride does not suffer long. It isn't kind. It makes people envious. It parades itself. It puffs up. It makes people behave rudely. It seeks its own interest, is easily provoked, and will keep a record of wrongs. Hands up if you want to be friends with someone like that. Well, in our parable today, Jesus wants to teach us the dangers of pride and how it can destroy our relationship with God. Let's read the parable together. Luke chapter 18 from verse 9. Yep. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In this parable, we are introduced to two characters, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. They both go to the temple to pray. Now, the Pharisees, they're well-known religious teachers of the day. They taught people how to live by God's laws, um, and they try very, very hard to live and be seen as the standard of commitment and devotion to God. The Pharisees generally had a high standing in society. But when Jesus came, instead of praising the Pharisees, which is what they and the other people expected, Jesus often rebuked them for missing the point. Outwardly, they seemed to be doing everything for God. But inwardly, it was all about themselves. The Pharisees' relationship with God can be summed up by this Old Testament quote that Jesus used on them. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now I want to give you a modern day example. The Pharisees in Jesus' time would be like a boyfriend who tries very, very hard to be the best boyfriend in the world. But let's give him a name. We don't have any Johns in here, do we? Okay, let's, talk, let's call him John. Okay, now, um, John has a girlfriend, Jasmine, and like, you know, he really loves her, and he really just wants to, you know, take her out on a date. He's motivated by a really good, you know, like, want to give his girlfriend the best date of the century. That's the motivation. So he studied hard um, on the dating manuals and read articles and participated in online discussions and finally, he was able to come up with this elaborate plan of what he imagined would be the best date of the century. Now, in order to achieve that, John needed to be in absolute control over every little part of the date. So he planned the date right down to the littlest detail, including picking out the dress that Jasmine was going to wear or, and his own, his own, his own suit, um, the flowers that would decorate the table, the menu, the food, the temperature in the room, the music, 
And even like he checked the weather app to see if it would be a good weather that day. He expected the day to go perfectly, just the way he planned. And even Jasmine, his girlfriend, was expected to behave in the way he imagined she would. To be all impressed and to brag about him to all her friends. But because he was so busy trying to make sure everything was just right, he actually on that date fails to connect and really be there with Jasmine. Instead of looking into her eyes and say, Jasmine, what gorgeous eyes. Or like admiring how beautiful she was or listening to her talk about her day. He spent the time fussing over every little detail possible or just to talk about how much effort he went through in order to make that evening right for them. In the end, the date was no longer about loving Jasmine, but it was all about himself, about how good he was as a boyfriend and how much effort he had put in and how lucky Jasmine was to be his girlfriend because no other boyfriend in the world would go to the extent John did to please Jasmine. Now, when Jasmine tried to tell John that she was actually allergic to the flowers he picked out, how do you think he would react? What? I went to like, you know, Flemington to pick this out at 5 a.m. And when she said like, you know, actually I can't drink that wine, I'm on this new medicine, he'd be like, why didn't you tell me this earlier? And if, you know, she didn't really appreciate everything, every little detail that, you know, he tried to do in order to please her, um, John becomes quite like, offended and he becomes quite like sad and depressed and finally when Jasmine tells him hey you know what like thank you for doing all this but I really just wanted a simple night in I really just wanted to be like you know want us to be like like Lily and her boyfriend they just like connect and they just talk and doesn't we don't need all these fancy stuff we just really I just really want to talk to you and connect with you Whoa, he was like, how dare you compare me to Lily's boyfriend? You know why they have simple night ins? It's because he doesn't put in any effort. So you see, John the Pharisee had made the date about himself. His focus and his heart wasn't really on Jasmine, the person he claimed to be doing all this for. He missed the point of the date and he missed the point of what it means to be in a relationship. John expected Jasmine to feel loved and pampered, but if you were Jasmine, how would you be feeling at, that end, at the end of that unforgettable, unforgettable um, date? Be like, I don't know if he's in this relationship for me. Pride, the love of one's own excellence, destroys relationships. And this is the same with the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who went to pray at God's temple. The Pharisee missed the point. Listen to how he prays, verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. In just two verses, we get a deep look into the Pharisee's heart. We see that his whole focus was misplaced. Prayer is meant to be one of the most intimate things you can do with God. It's communicating with God. It's talking to him. 
It's meant to be, you know, like when we sit down with a friend, we set time apart to connect with them and to become closer to each other. It's for building relationships with the other person. But the Pharisee wasn't there to connect with God. His whole focus wasn't even on God. After the initial mention of God's name, it was all about himself and how much better he was than other people. What did the Pharisee really want by going to the temple to pray? He didn't want God. He wasn't interested in a real and genuine connection. He was there for self-affirmation, for praise, to feel good about himself. He probably prayed just loud enough so that the people around him would be able to hear him. He wanted to show everybody. He wanted to show God, to show himself and the people who were listening what a great guy he really was. He was no different to Jasmine's boyfriend, John. He made this date with God all about himself. In contrast, let's look at the tax collector. The tax collector back in the days were a pretty hated group of people. They were seen as the traitors by the Jewish people because they collected tax um, from their own people on behalf of the enemy, the Roman Empire. They also had a bad reputation because many of the tax collectors used that opportunity to extort money and they took a lot more than what people needed to pay. Now, just by looking at outward things, we would have expected God to accept the Pharisee and reject the tax collector because we expect God to accept the good people and reject the immoral or bad ones. But there was something in the tax collector's prayer and attitude that God delighted in. This is how he prayed, verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Again, this is a very short prayer, but enough to reveal the heart. What did the tax collector want? He wanted God. He wanted God's forgiveness. Even though physically he would not even stand close to God or even look up to God um, because of his feelings of unworthiness, but the eyes of his heart were squarely focused on God. Unlike the Pharisees who had his eyes set on himself and others, the tax collector was focused on God. What the tax collector cared about was his relationship with the person that he was praying to. He cared about that their relationship was broken and that he needed God's mercy and forgiveness in order to be right with God again. In the end, Jesus told his listeners, it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, that went home justified before God. In other words, it was the tax collector who went home with the right and restored relationship with God. The people listening to Jesus at that time would have been really surprised. God's response would have been a total reversal of their expectations. But if we think about it more deeply, it actually makes a lot of sense. Because God, unlike us, can actually see into each person's heart. He knows whether we are here because we want him or because we want to use him as a means to get what we want. The Pharisee didn't want God, so he went home the exact same person he came. The tax collector wanted God's forgiveness, and so he went home with it. Brothers and sisters, God wants us to approach him humbly. When we go to God in prayer, he wants us to focus our attention on him, not on ourselves and not comparing ourselves with others. 
Those who are proud have no room for God in their hearts because it is already full with themselves. Let us learn the valuable lesson Jesus is teaching us through this parable. Verse 14. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pride is very dangerous. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. He reminded us that it was through pride that the devil became the devil. But you know what? God is very generous and very patient and very kind. He gives us chance after chance to repent and to come back to him. Jesus wasn't telling this story to just antagonize the Pharisees that were listening to him. Jesus wanted the Pharisees who were listening to repent. If any of the Pharisees would repent, would humble themselves and know that they have in fact offended God with their attitude and arrogance, then God would forgive them. Surprisingly, despite all that the Pharisees were doing, God still wanted a relationship with the Pharisees. Every warning Jesus gave in the Bible, he gave it out of love because there was room in Jesus' heart even for the Pharisees. Jesus died on the cross for both the tax collector and the Pharisee. Isn't Jesus so great? So if we find that we've been like the Pharisees in our relationship with God, if, if we've been missing the point, then it's time to repent and recenter our focus back on God. Maybe this is what we've been doing in prayer. We go to God, but we've only been focusing on ourselves. We haven't looked at God. We haven't praised him for who he is. We haven't thanked him for everything that he's given to us. We've just been asking him for stuff. Or that we've just been like telling God how good we are. It's time to repent and recenter our, our focus back on God. Now I want to talk about how this looks like in salvation. When it comes to salvation, this parable is teaching us that we could either be proud and choose to trust in our own righteousness like the Pharisee, or we could humble ourselves and trust in God's mercy like the tax collector. And the take-home message is this. Those who are proud and trust in their own good works and merits to get, help them get right with God and to earn them a spot in heaven, they will be cast out. But those who trust in God's mercy will receive God's forgiveness and reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, many people in this world have misunderstood the nature of heaven and God's kingdom. They think of heaven as a happy place for endless pleasures, the reward God gives to those who, who have lived a good life on earth. But heaven is where God dwells. We can think of it as God's house. Actually, the song we sing, you know, like we have a spot in God's house, right? We have a place in God's house. Um, heaven is like God's house, his own personal space. Yes, there are many good things in God's house, but the main reason why people are allowed to live in that house is because they have a relationship with God. But the problem is that we have all wronged God and we have deeply offended him. 
This is what the Bible calls sin. And we are not welcome in his house. Let's think for a moment, if we've deeply offended someone and our relationship with the person has utterly broken down, can we just presume that we will be welcomed in his house whenever we want? Of course not, right? That would be a very bad and arrogant assumption. If we want to be welcomed in, then we must first mend the broken relationship. So how do we go about that? How do we mend a broken relationship? Well, I can tell you what would not work. We don't go to the person and start listing out our achievements and how good we are. It's like, my relationship with Jen's broken. I don't just go to her and go like, Jen, you know what? I'm such a good person. You know, the other day, I lent Rachel $500. Or, you know, I helped, I helped James fix his guitar. Or like, whatever it is. Jen will be like, huh? <laughs> like, what's that gonna do with me? How absurd that we think bragging about our performance or achievements mend a broken relationship. It makes no sense at all. We don't do that to people. We don't go up to those we've offended and say, hey, look, man, you should forgive me because I did A, B, C, D, E. No one does that. But somehow we think that's going to work with God. It's really strange. If we go out to the streets of Chatswood and we, and we you know, interviewed a few people, why do you think God would let you into heaven? Why, what do you think they would say? A very common response would be, because I've been a pretty good person. Isn't that interesting? I've been a good, pretty good person. But what's that got to do um, for your relationship with God? When it comes to mending broken relationships and reconciling with someone you've deeply offended, what really matters isn't your performance or achievements. It's not about how good you are or how moral you have been. In fact, pride will only get in the way of true reconciliation. What really matters is that you actually care about the person. You care about your relationship with them and that you are sorry and that you ask, will you forgive me? Then the rest is up to the other person, whether the person also cares for you and wants to reconcile with you. You can't force the person to reconcile with you, not by good performance or gifts. You are entirely dependent on the person's mercy and goodwill. And that's what the tax collector understands. He cries out for God's mercy. And the good news is this. We don't have to keep guessing if God cares and wants to reconcile. God tells us that he does. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, and we're actually saying it in the song as well, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Even before we were sorry, God already showed us his love and his willingness to reconcile by sending Jesus to us. He extended his hand out to us first. How should we respond then? Well, firstly, by having a real and genuine desire to reconnect with God which would include a sincere apology for dishonoring him and offending him. And secondly, to humbly trust him when he tells us that all the debt has been paid by Jesus. Jesus, his son, has paid for everything we ever owed God, everything, 
including all the penalty that we deserved for dishonoring and offending him. Jesus paid it all. God himself took initiative and sent his son to pay for us what we could never have paid ourselves. You know, we're the ones that have offended God. God's a victim here. We, we offended God. And we're the ones that have done wrong. And yet it is God who reaches out his hand to us first. At a personal cost to himself. He settles whatever we owed him. And he tells us, I'm willing and ready to forgive. Let's reconcile. Why would he do that? I wouldn't. But God did. He's way more amazing than me which is great. But you know what? The sad thing is not everyone will accept that because it takes true humility to be able to trust Jesus. Those who are proud would be offended rather than being thankful. Remember our definition at the very beginning of the talk? Pride is defined as the love of one's own excellence. If it's all Jesus, then he gets all the credit, all the glory, and all the honor and praise. It leaves no room for the love and praise of our own excellence. And the sad thing is some people just can't accept that. Dear friends, if you are not yet a Christian, and you have not yet accepted this forgiveness from God, will you consider doing that today? God has made a way And he's reached out his hand to us first, wanting to reconcile with you. But what about you? Do you want a relationship with him? You know, like God is so kind. I was sharing this in um, pre-service prayer with um, A.B. and um, Albert. Like, you know, like if someone came to me and said, I want to be your friend, but really what they really want is to have all the benefits that being my friend can bring. I mean, there's not much benefits, but I do have VR, okay? And I have B-Saver, and it's really fun. And those people on Facebook that I tagged haven't replied, okay? I know who you are. Okay, um, like, you know, it's like if you have, you know, people come to me and they just want to be my friend because of the benefits that I could give to them. I'm going to be like, no way. Who do you think I am? Like, you know, like... You don't want a relationship with me. You just, you just want to play my VR. But you know, like we do that with God. We're like, God, like I just want all the gifts that you give. Like eternal life, like blessings, just everything. But God is so much kinder and so much more patient because he often would actually say, yeah, come in. Come into my house first, play with the VR, let me cook you a meal, and, you know, like, and then slowly bring us to understand what it means to have a relationship with him. Isn't he good? Isn't he great? Isn't he patient and kind? If you want this God, you can have a relationship with him today. He's done everything possible so that you can reconcile with him. But, you know, when we reconcile with someone, we don't just, like, you know, like, we don't don't just um, reconcile and then we have nothing to do with each other. We reconcile and we continue to build relationship and we learn what it means to be God's friend. We learn what it means to be God's child. Like, reconciliation is just the first step in a healthy and intimate relationship. So if you want that today, 
please come and talk to me. I want to help you. If you are already a Christian, then would you take some time to ask yourself, do I really want God? Do I really care about him? Or am I just using him to get what I want? And if you find that you've lost focus, if you have been making the relationship with God about yourself, then would you say sorry to him? Lastly, I just want to share what I believe is an effective remedy for pride. It's simple. So simple. You just spend more time with God. To learn more about him, to know him more deeply, the more we look to God, the more we see his goodness, his mercy, his kindness, his beauty. And when we realize that we are in the presence of greatness, then we simply cannot help but be humble. When we realize how great God is, there's no room for pride. Here's a helpful exercise that you can try. When you read the Bible, it's good to ask every time, what do I learn about God from this passage? What amazes me about God from this passage? And then after that, spend some time in your prayers praising God for what you've learned about him. So to give this, the example of this passage, what I've learned about God is that you know he is willing and ready for us to connect with him, for example, and he wants to connect with us. Or that you can say like, okay, God wants us to be humble. That's something what I learned about God. Then I can, after this, and I can pray to him. I said, God, thank you for telling me your will. Thank you for helping me understand that you desire a humble heart or that thank you that you're so willing to reconcile with us or you're so willing to reconnect with us and just thank him for who he is. Turn that into a habit and see what that does for your relationship with God. Would you try that out? Well, we're going to end the sermon here, but I want to give you some time to pray.